Welcome back to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm Tracy Castles, PhD, and see, I'm back already with a new episode. No more huge weights, I promise. All right, this week I have a great chat with Haley Buckhampson from The Gentle Mama. She recently recovered from COVID-19, so I thank her for taking the time to chat when she did. Now, we cover a lot of ground here, and I was particularly enjoying our conversation about the cross-cultural differences in parenting and practices, given that she happens to live in Dubai. So, okay, let's jump right in. Here's my conversation with Haley, the gentle mama. Joining me today is the wonderful and amazing Haley of the gentle mama. If you don't know her, you have to check her out. She is on Facebook, on Instagram, on I don't know what else. You've got your webpage. You'll tell us everything where you are. Um, She is originally from the UK. She's been working with families for quite a while now, but currently resides in Dubai. So welcome, Haley. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Tracy. Um, And I want to start. I want to hear the story because you originally UK, you're now in Dubai. Yeah. What brought you there and what brought you to working with families there? Like what a unique kind of path to have taken. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I used to work in uh, media planning and strategy, which was such a different path. And we were living in central London and we were, you know, getting public transport everywhere and shopping at Selfridges during the lunch break. And it was busy and high flying and private members club and all this lifestyle. <laughs> Slightly different now. Um <laughs> Yeah, I my husband got offered a job. He works in finance and he got offered a job in Dubai. So we uh, packed up and headed off. We said we'd go for one to two years to save some money because it's tax free. Um, and we got started over here and bought a house pretty much as soon as we got here. And I, I think we were just naive because we thought, hey, we'll buy a house and we'll have a baby. And then in a year or two, we'll come home but it was a year or two before we finished decorating the house. So we were definitely not gonna sell it straight away. That wasn't happening. Um, so yeah, we we basically uh, spent nine months cooking a baby, decorating the house, and then my baby was born. And uh, she is, I think, an orchid baby. Um, and she's pretty uh, high needs and, sleep was a challenge my expectations were really wrong um i had no idea what i was doing but i was following the books and social expectations and social pressures and i thought i'm doing it all wrong and i don't know what i'm you know why i'm ruining my baby but she's not sleeping and all these other things um so then i i got to that stage at around eight months when uh they wake up in the middle of the night ready to party and I remember sitting on the floor, I was we were in the UK visiting my parents and I was sitting on the floor uh, at one o'clock in the morning crying whilst playing with my baby who's wide awake. And I thought, that's it, I can't do this. I have to get a sleep trainer. Um, so I hired uh, a gentle sleep trainer who told me that it was going to be entirely gentle. All crying was uh perfectly supported and it's normal and natural and all these things that you want to hear um and we got started and she didn't hand us the information all at once the plan came day by day which Mm -hmm. should have rang alarm bells straight away um and then once we got into it we got into i think day two or day three and i was like hang on a minute 
this is gradual withdrawal. That is, that's not what I wanted to do here. Um, and yeah, I kind of cottoned on to what was happening and I thought there is no gentle sleep support. There's no, there's nothing there. Um, so I pulled out of that pretty sharpish and started doing my own research and learning for myself and digging into it. And that's how I started The Gentle Mama because I became really passionate about it when I realized I'm not the only one out there who feels like this and that it is really frustrating to be in this situation and not know where to turn or who to speak to. And especially out here, not to have anyone that I could uh, hire either who would help me uh, with anything. So yeah, that's kind of how I got here. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, the fact you mentioned that whole gentle guise, and it's something that drives me nuts. And I, yeah. I wrote, when I wrote the introduction to Sarah Cole Smith's gentle sleep book, I used the phrase, beware the wolf in boots clothing. And I feel yeah. like it just speaks to so much of what is out there now that there, I, I keep hearing, you know, all these promises made to people. And I get people that work with me who have worked with others before. And they're like, well, they keep saying it's gentle. And I had one call once where they started up. They're like, all right. So at what point do you tell me to leave my baby to cry? And yeah. I'm like, I don't, <laughs> it's kind of not part of this at all. So, but they were like, really? I'm not sure I trust you. Cause like, you're like the fourth person we've gone to now and yep. everyone ends up telling us that we need to leave our baby to cry. And I'm just yeah. like, oh my God, that's it. And there's, they're all say they're gentle, but they're not, you know, no. it is really. So, I mean, I know we didn't talk about it, but how, did you use that as a guide as to what to tell people? Like, this is what to avoid. When you're looking for help, how do you navigate out that gentle moniker before getting too deeply into it? Yeah. I mean, I talk about it a lot in my writing, um, the the wolf in sheep's clothing. You know, it is a huge, huge thing. And there are, over here especially, there are a lot of people jumping on the bandwagon and using the term um, gentle in their marketing, using it in their names, in their branding. And it is in no way correlating to gentle parenting at all. And when you try and speak, you know, I did before I certified as an infant sleep educator, I, um, I tried speaking with people about this and saying, um, look, the, this is not gentle what you're doing. How can you actually justify yourself in using that term and they're like oh but it's more gentle than cry it out so it is gentle mm -hmm. no that's it's not gentle <laughs> it's not gentle it is just yes further down the scale on non-gentle <laughs> right this is it is amazing to me and yet it seems to be proliferating I mean, even more. And I mean, I think we're lucky that there's a lot of places now coming out that really are certifying people as gentle, which I think is yeah. lovely. Like, I think we yeah. need that kind of push. And that's that's been, I think, probably over the last few years, one of the most oh, beneficial yes. things to come out of this. But it is, but it's now getting so hard to disentangle because it's like everyone's learned that's that keyword. You just say gentle and people will yeah. buy into it and they will come in. And then, you know, then you start to convince people like, Oh, no, no, no. That little bit of crying, that's just protest crying. They're not really yeah. needing you. That's not. So therefore, those cries you get to ignore. 
But yeah. these other ones are what we're really concerned about. Oh, and that drives me absolutely mad. I had somebody uh, use, I went to a gentle sleep workshop um, and in the workshop they said, you know, you can ignore the protest cries. And as the mum, you know when it's a protest cry. I was like, wait a minute, this isn't okay. You can't say that. It's, they're, they're still communicating with you. And yeah, it, it's just ludicrous. But I find if somebody is using the term sleep training, in what they're doing, then that's when alarm bells ring because you cannot train a baby to sleep. So anyone who is promising sleep training is pulling the wool over your eyes. They are uh, making false promises. They are claiming things that they're not actually going to do. Um, you can't trust it. So wherever there is the term sleep training, alarm bells. For me, you know, whenever it's mentioned on my site or in anything that I'm writing, it is saying, I don't do this. And of course, yes, for some people, that is their choice. Every family is different. They make their own choices. But I will never do that. And for me, the alarm bells come when when you see the term sleep training, because that's when you're trying to change a, a baby's behavior generally to fit in with an adult's needs rather than managing or meeting them where they are. Yeah. And that's, you know, that discussion about meeting an adult's needs. I, I will get to that because I think that's such a interesting topic that I know we have lined up to kind of talk about with these individual babies needs. But I want to kind of go back to this whole Dubai melting pot. Like yeah. you live in a place with so many different cultures. And I mean, I think like I, I work with families around the world, but by and large, most of them, not all, but most come from similar cultural ideologies, similar cultural practices. Yeah. I know what I'm up against. You know what I mean? Right off the bat, we know exactly that you know, for example, if I have a client in the UK, I know how prominent cry it out is and that separate sleep space and everything like that. So I know what I'm facing. Dubai seems like, I mean, you can talk about it, but it feels yeah. like there is just, um, I don't, how do you know what you're up against as you yeah. get into working with it's, someone? And you know, it's so, so interesting. Um you can't you don't know what culture somebody is coming from until you start a consultation with them until you meet them um even through their form you know i don't write on the form what is your heritage where did you live before dubai um this is it is something it's only when you start talking you get to know them that you get to know the culture that they're coming from um and it is a melting pot you know in dubai i think it's something in the 80 percent ish is expats Everyone else is local, but it's like 80 odd percent, um, which is huge. And coming from all over the world, there's, it's not just, you know, European expats, there's American, Canadian, there's Indian, there's from the Philippines, it's from everywhere. So yeah, my clients, but my clients are from all over the world. So it's, I often don't even know where they're coming from until they tell me what currency they want to pay in. <laughs> But it's, yeah, the the cultures are such a huge part of it. Um, every, you know, if you're coming from India, for example, or coming from, uh, from the Middle East as well, uh, sleep is often seen as something that should be later in the night. Um, often they'll have a, a nap during the day, kind of like Spain, a bit of a siesta in the day. And then uh, the kids are expected to stay up later and the babies as well. 
So I will have clients who are telling me their babies are going to bed at 10 p.m. Um, at you know one year old and they're going to bed at 10 and then waking up at nine in the morning, for example. Um, and then I have other clients from the UK and their babies are going to bed at 6.30, 7 p.m. and then they're waking up at 6.30 in the morning. Um, and But then you'll find the babies that are going to bed at 10 and then waking up at six in the morning. <laughs> I have that baby both my kids are late to bed and later to rise and always have been and it was always fascinating when I lived in Vancouver we um we did a homeschool group and there was a couple from oh where were they was it Hong Kong or China I can't remember which I apologize um but they would say they're like oh you've got the Asian baby schedule <laughs> <laughs> That's when you look at the research too. The average bedtime amongst most Asian nations is also quite late. The average mm -hmm. bedtime can be upwards of 10 p.m. with some going to bed even later. And it's, you know, it is so interesting because I feel like these cultural differences and when you end up, so, so does Dubai have kind of like, do the doctors there, do everything have that set of expectations around sleep that they're kind of pushed to people or does it not really come up in conversations there? It does, um, sleep training is really prevalent here. Okay. Uh, there are a growing number of attachment parents and gentle parents and people who are just listening to their intuition and their baby. They don't have any labels. They don't know anything about attachment or gentle parenting, but they know that they don't feel comfortable with the sleep training route. Um, that is growing. Uh, which is great and we have uh, an attachment parenting UAE group that I started a few years ago that is I think there's about 600 of us in that um, so it's it's growing but um, there is still a lot of sleep training pressure over here and there is a lot of uh, old information being shared by doctors pediatricians in particular um, I mean I remember when my now six-year-old was uh, four months old, going to a pediatrician, and she quoted research from the 80s telling me that my uh, baby should be fed uh, solids now because she wasn't gaining enough weight. And I pushed back and said, actually, no, you know, I've read the latest research and I'm following her curves and everything's fine. Um, and she shouldn't be having solids. And she was like, no, this is the research. And it was from the 80s. And that's really worrying. And that's happening with sleep. And the number of times I hear it from people that their doctor has told them their baby should be sleeping through by now, or, oh, it's worrying that your baby is still having milk at night. I'm sorry. So a doctor is saying that? I, I'm curious then, because it is such a melting pot. And I want to just quickly, sorry, the comments are starting to pop up. I get oh, them on the center. So first off, I just want to say hi to Jessica, who's telling me that her son is finally sleeping through and has a little brother on the way, which is very oh. congratulations. Uh, sleep training, as she said, it just got there, right? Like kids will get there, which is such yeah. an important message to remember. But um, Cynthia says in Argentina, kids usually go to bed after 9 p.m. And yep. Elise shares that her hubby tutors a two-year-old from 8 to 9 p.m. in Hong Kong. And, wow. you know, so they're actually actively doing stuff and it's um, they go to bed much later. And so there are all these cultural variations. So given these cultural variations, I'm wondering where are these doctors coming from in Dubai? Like, where do we get like, are they from all over or is yeah. this really like and so this 
frame of this cultural sleep training, it seems like, I don't even know, how do you get to sleep training when you're mm -hmm. having that kids are up late? Like, are they, I have no words because well, I'm just so confused. <laughs> it is it is really confusing. Um, yeah, so the, the babies stay up late um, and the children stay up late. You know, if you go before I had uh, my first daughter, when I actually went out at night, um, I would uh, go out for dinner and I would be shocked that at 10 p.m. there would still be kids running around the restaurants. Um, but that's just normal. For, for local and for some other cultures as well. You're saying Hong Kong, Argentina, um, whereas in the UK, it's not at all. But actually there's a lot of other issues with it. Um, for us being, you know, being from the UK where the kids go to bed earlier, um, there's a lot of events that don't start until five, six, 7 p.m. and we miss out. You know, there'll be a Christmas tree lighting at 7 p.m. <laughs> for my kids to sleep so yeah there's a lot of um stuff like that that is kind of how do we manage that they they can't manage it for every culture um the doctors are coming from all over they are from all different nationalities uh there are lots of local doctors um but there are also doctors from everywhere else as well i've met doctors from the uk and from ireland and from Asia and from yeah everywhere so it's it is just a melting pot and finding a good pediatrician who is gentle and supportive of, of attachment parenting is so challenging there used to be one doctor in the UAE that everyone would recommend within our circles um that was it one and then uh she left <laughs> So that became really difficult. Um, and now I think there are two or three that people are suggesting are good. I don't have experience with them myself, but uh, it is difficult to find. Yeah, that's, it's amazing to me that it has crossed such cultural barriers, like that sleep training is just, you know, even you would think, I know there are cultures where it's still not prominent where they are. Um, so, you know what I mean? I hear, I, I speak to people where, you know, for example, in India, you don't have yeah. sleep training really advocated. That's, there's a lot of co-sleeping, that's how things go. But yet you move to another place mm. and even the doctors that come from that cultural background can end up supporting something because of its, I don't know if it's because it's westernized, it's seen as Yeah, good. it's westernized, it's lifestyle. Um, mm. And there is a high standard of living over here. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, people have help in the house. A, a lot of people have live-in help here in Dubai. So you have a, a maid or a nanny who lives in your house with you. And um, life, you know, it, life, the standard of living is different. The expectations are different. Um, and I think as a result, People are looking for easy answers a lot of the time. So it's it's seen as, you know, we don't have uh, we don't have a village, there's no family, there's the children that you grew up with who became your best friends are in other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, so you don't have your friend, your old friends, you don't have that connection around you. Um, and I think that doctors are just trying to find ways to uh, to make things easier for mums 
to maintain their standard of living and to make life smooth for them. Um, and rather than managing expectations, they're saying, okay, let's just nip this in the bud. We'll go for a behaviorist approach and we'll just shut it off. <laughs> yeah. Which is, so that actually raised the question, what, because there's a comment here about how um, Nick wrote that a doctor told me on our first visit that he will ensure that our daughter is sleeping through the night at four months, as long as I don't, quote, cave to her demands for milk. Oh so, right. But what is the breastfeeding situation in Dubai? Is there? Yeah, actually, this is really interesting. Um, I, th I believe, no, I don't. <laughs> should know the laws better um, but I believe that um, there is a law to support breastfeeding um, up to two years uh, women are expected to uh, particularly locals are expected to breastfeed up to two years and to be given the support that they need for that which is awesome yeah breastfeeding and uh, changing rooms in all the malls beautiful like luxurious rooms in all the malls um the you're welcome to feed i mean yes a lot of people use a cover for modesty um but i don't think you would be stopped so much if you were not i have heard of some stories of it but if you challenge them you know, I've heard of somebody in a doctor's uh, waiting room being told off for breastfeeding without a cover. And I believe if you challenge them, they absolutely have no rights on that. They they can't actually tell you to move or to cover or anything like that when you're breastfeeding. It is supported. Okay. But then how do they reconcile that with the nighttime? I'm just... <laughs> I know. I know. They feed. This is what they do. Yeah. They nurse for nutrition and growth spurts for pain relief for comfort for closeness for the whole nine yards I mean yeah. it yeah, is so important and it's just not it's just seen as this inconvenience and it's you know it seems to be that the inconvenience has uh has been forgotten this yeah. you know it came in as this is an inconvenience let's fix this and that's been forgotten. And now so many parents are just saying, well, they shouldn't be feeding at night, right? And it's not the, the inconvenience layer has disappeared. And now it's seen as this is how we should expect our babies to behave. And this is what we need to do or what we have to fix about our baby. Yeah. It's it, crazy. Is, it is crazy. And it's crazy to me because, you know, you often associate a link between sleep training and a lack of supportive breastfeeding. Because you look at cultures where they may give lip service to breastfeeding, right? Like I'll take yeah. the United States, for example. You will always hear breast is best. Doctors talk about it, all this stuff. But even, you know, there was research a little while ago looking at doctors' perceptions of breastfeeding. So although they kept claiming, yes, we know breast milk is this, that, the other, the, I think it was a majority of them said that they didn't think actually most women could breastfeed fully exclusively for that long. So they have this expectation and that goes into the advice and the support and everything they're providing. Yeah. To others, right. Yeah. So we have this. And so then you start getting, well, when you have that relationship where people aren't really supporting breastfeeding, of course, you're also not supporting sleep because you get to disentangle the two and view them as separate. Yeah. But when you hear of a case where you have a culture where breastfeeding is supported, and it's at least ostensibly said to be supported. And yeah. then it's kind of flipped around at night for women to reach these goals of two years or whatever it is that they're hoping people do. 
yet you're taking away those crucial nighttime feeds. It seems like such a juxtaposition that can't go together. So I'm yeah. always, yeah. It is, it's confusing. And the thing is over here, um, it's not like we have public healthcare. I think where you are, you have mm -hmm. healthcare, yeah, yeah, which is so fortunate. I mean, it's, we have fantastic healthcare, but what we don't have is consistency. You know, it, you pay for each piece that you're going for and you can use your insurance, that's great. Uh, but it's not like there is one person, you can choose for each thing what doctor you go to. So you have a baby, and there is not like a plan of care for you after you have the baby. There is no checkup here and we're going to support you with a lactation consultant here and then we're going to do this here. It is, you've got your baby, maybe you wanna go see a midwife after a few days and get some vaccines and here's a few pieces of paper and they just leave you to it. And you kind of have to figure out yourself what you're gonna do. So that's, that's confusing. Um, so in terms of getting the support, unless you know to speak to a lactation consultant or book yourself in, we have a, a lady here called Amy who does brilliant breastfeeding courses. Unless you know to do those things, You're not. I mean, then you you're kind of lost and you don't have that support. So yes, it is supported in that you're not allowed to question a woman who is breastfeeding in public, but it is not supported in that you have somebody who's going to be checking on you and who is your consistent provider to go to for each stage. You can choose someone who might be able to do that for you, but then you've got to be in the know. Mm -hmm. Not great. Just a reminder of how systemic these issues really become yeah. for sleep and everything. It's It almost doesn't matter the culture, whether it's one or another, there is always a systemic issue of really not supporting women and babies is yeah. what I think it really comes down to there. So, um, I mean, we look at, we've talked a bit about these different averages, different expectations across cultures. We have all these, you know, I mean, it sounds like even there, even with the melting pot, all this kind of pressure to do, to conform to what is being expected. And I know we want to talk at the beginning a bit about not just these cultural differences, but how this maps out on kind of an individual scale, because yeah. we look at these differences like, I'm in Canada, my kids are night owls and the kids yeah. next door go to bed earlier and we have friends that are in between and yeah. all this stuff. And I always feel for families because, you know, I will say I find it interesting and difficult to help people navigate when they're going against the grain of their culture, whatever mm -hmm. that grain is. And, yeah. you know, I would think about um, the kids who are long nappers versus cat nappers. I know here you have a baby that doesn't sleep long during the day. It's, oh, that's a problem. You want to work on that. Get them up to napping two hours instead of accepting it. Yeah. I know um, from cross-cultural reading that apparently in Japan, they often cap naps at an hour so that they don't want babies going longer because the belief is that it interferes with sleep. So I think about if you were there having a baby who wants to sleep two, three hours during the day, you'd be navigating against that cultural grain of what's going on. Um, and so it all comes down to this idea of individual sleep needs. How do we manage the intense pressure from one side, but our children's biological needs on another yeah. for finding what their sleep needs are and helping families both identify what they are, but also handle the struggles. And this goes back to what you were saying, you know, you miss out on stuff there because your kids individ 
like individual sleep needs don't match the cultural events, everything. So, I mean, how have you managed that in your case with your kids of, of that, of missing out on stuff? How did they cope with it? Do they just, are they unaware or is it? (laughs) Generally they're unaware. I don't even (laughs) mention. <laughs> we just won't tell them. You don't know. No, the tree magically lit overnight. You know what yeah. was there. I, the, I mean, the thing is, with a lot of the families that I work with, um, I talk a lot about, in fact, with every family and in all the writing I do and everything else, I talk a lot about um, individual needs and, uh, you know, temperament, how your sleep personality um, is actually really important and we don't want to fight against that. We want to embrace that and work with it. Um, but for me, a really big piece in all of this is to fight against societal pressure. And that is, it's a huge task to try and ask people to do that. Um, they don't want to fight against that pressure because they have it coming from so many different angles and they have enough on their minds already and they're trying to tap into their intuition, but how are they supposed to fight through all those layers? It's a huge task, but it's a big part of what I ask people to do, um, is sit with their intuition and try and tap into it and listen to that, and to really focus on their baby's cues and signals and communications right from the beginning, so that they don't feel as much of that pressure because they feel more confident in what they're doing in their own bubble. And as soon as you get people to kind of narrow down that focus, there's like a stillness, a calmness where they go, ah, I get this. I can actually do this because I can read her and it doesn't matter what they're saying, but it takes quite a lot of effort to get to that point. And that's where I think information and awareness, I mean, this is everything that you do. this information is so important and getting this message out to mums and dads is so vital because without the information there's no way that they can feel uh, empowered enough to listen to their own intuition it's society does not encourage us to listen to our intuition at all no and that's and one of the things I often talk to families about when it's necessary is how there is this, you know, we look at the biological urge to respond to our babies and be there and do everything. And then, you know, we all say that there's all these people talking, why can't I just tell them all to fuck off? Like, why is this not possible? Why does it feel so hard when I, you know, I know I want to listen to my baby. And I remind families that it's like, you know, the other factor here is that we also have a biological urge to belong. Yeah. And if we feel like we're doing things that take us away from the group, that from an evolutionary perspective is dangerous. We don't survive on our own. We survive because we're part of a group. And so when we feel like we have to go against the grain, that is actually, it can feel threatening. So it's absolutely normal to embrace that. Yeah, yeah, it feels hard. It is absolutely, but in our world, you're not being shunned. You're not going to live in a cave by yourself. You're not gonna go fight the lion by yourself you actually do still have these other supports in place and lots of other supports that, you know, historically weren't there in terms of online groups and peer to peer support, Mm -hmm. your family, your group, your community, isn't just those people that are chirping in your ear and telling you all this stuff. It can be 
much broader and greater than that too. Absolutely. And it actually, um, everything you're saying takes me to uh, Brené Brown's work about uh, belonging versus fitting in. And there is such a need to belong and we kind of mix that up with fitting in. And so we do try and do these things that are going so against our own intuition. And, you know, you'll see, you'll read stories of people sitting outside their baby's room as the baby's crying and they're crying equally as hard as their baby because it feels so wrong. But they feel, they think they're doing the right thing and they're fitting in with what everyone else is doing. That's not belonging. If you are, if it's hurting your heart to do something, you're not belonging in that moment. You are fitting in, which means you are squeezing yourself into something that is not you. So it's so, so important to find your tribe isn't it to you know to find the people you do belong with yes and we want to be careful with that word i have really been reading about the cultural appropriation of that word from indigenous cultures so i want to be i am really trying to avoid it and it's i've been reading lots so i just i bring that up out of i know it's not tangential to this but it is something that i mean it's a topic for a whole other day but um yeah. no but our group it's to find your your group and i love what you said about the fitting in there and one of the other ways I like to think about it is not just is it hurting you but are these people that you're doing this please are they going to run and and rescue you if yeah. you know are they the ones that are coming in that are going to take care of you when you're sick mm -hmm. are they going to feed you are they going to um make sure you and your family are okay because if they're not you're not belonging with them you're just no. you are just fitting in and yeah. the people who are there and that love you like your family as much as they may chirp will they still be there if you're not fitting in with what they want you to do yeah. because exactly. if they will then you still belong and yeah. so it's okay to say hey i'm doing something a little different here and not what you That's, yeah such a good way of putting it exactly you yeah. you know if they're not going to stick around then that's why you not care? yeah <laughs> like those are not the people you want anyway like no. you can agree with you all you want but if you're not there like they don't get that's that's what it is so yeah. you know here's my question so what are you have we have the issue of as you put it I love it reaching the stillness point of being able to focus on your baby but what comes with this cultural pressure and I think is one of the larger issues is the lack of support hmm. where how do we help families with, I mean, they have this intense pressure and then people not only don't support them, but often turn around with, oh, well, you made the rod for your own back. So you, <laughs> oh, I'm mad. It's so, I mean, what, how do you get families to either come to terms with that, that they're not going to be supported, um, to face some of the struggles and barriers that are in place for them? And I realize this is a huge question, so feel free to, you know, because it's such a massive one. But, you know, you've been there yourself, yeah. right? Yeah. Having been told, you know, doctors don't say, well, if you're struggling, I want you to sleep train. You say, no, I don't want to do that. They say, OK, well, let's think about how else can we support you, meet your needs. They're like, well, that's what you've got to do. And yeah, they kind of walk away from you at that point. Um, we have a really fortunate thing over here. Um and I know that it exists in other countries, but in the UAE, um, Facebook groups are actually a really big support because I think it, particularly in Dubai, Dubai is small um, and people kind of know each other and the groups are strong and 
you can ask for advice and it's like having a neighborhood except your neighborhood is enormous for, on a neighborhood <laughs> perspective um but so the those groups are really helpful and for me yeah i was in that situation but the first thing i did was go on to a group over here for breastfeeding support and i plugged in the weight of my baby at different ages and i sent it out and i said i've been asked to start uh, feeding solids doesn't feel right to me doesn't match with my research what do you think and i had like 30 responses straight away i had lactation consultants messaging on there going through plotting the figures themselves and saying look you are fine do this do that speak to a lactation consultant you know they were so supportive that i felt informed and empowered and confident to ignore the advice of that doctor so having that network it yeah it's not my my group in person and some of these people i've never met many of them I've never met, but it was a support that really changed things for me. And that was another point that started getting me going, going, okay, I can do my own research here. And I am empowered to do my own research, become informed and make my own choices for my family. So talking with clients, it's the same thing. Becoming informed is really, really important. And you don't have to trust my opinion. You can trust, you know, don't trust anyone's opinion, including mine, <laughs> but do your own research and listen to what feels right to you. Yeah. And, you know, as long as people know that, you know, if somebody comes to them, say, just trust my, trust what I'm saying, that's an alarm bell as well. Because no, they should be allowed to do all the research and then find what, what feels right for them. Absolutely. I mean, I've got no ego over it. If they don't want to trust what I'm saying, that's okay because every family is different. Yeah. Oh, I take calls. It's fun. I, I actually enjoy Sometimes families will come and be like, we need to talk through like one of us has heard all these and we'll do like a debunking or discussion of research that they've been told and everything else that's it's, you know what I mean? You kind of go through. No, but my doctor said this study said this and this said that and everything and it's like okay let's go <laughs> and it's some of my most favorite calls because I'm like I love those discussions because yeah. it is nuanced and it is important and actually it's interesting a question popped up how do you weed out the research that seems science-based but conflicts with what you feel is right so I'll ask you how do you do that because I know what I do but yeah I mean for me obviously reading through the research is a really big thing um there's a really famous study that uh, you'll be very familiar with, Tracy, um, that is talking about how uh, sleep training is great because the parents get more rest, they reported more sleep, it's all really positive. And very, very, you know, there's one line in that research that says, oh, but the ACT graph did show that the baby still woke up the same number of times. Um, it didn't, the sleep training didn't actually change the number of wake ups. Yeah. But the conclusion was still that sleep training is great. Yeah. Um, oh. you, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's absolutely shocking that this is, you know, this is how things are being put out there to the public. And it's it's not accurate. It's not we have to do the, the digging through ourselves. But for me, it's it's for 
for people who are looking for support, I would say it's more about finding people that you resonate with, listening to their message. And if you still resonate with that, then great. Follow that path. If you are only going purely science, you know, listening to the research from lots of different people, um, you then have to go down the route of digging yourself mm -hmm. and reading that research for yourself because it's too, you know, there's too much nuance in it, as you said. Yes. But if you can find people that you resonate with and you start to hear things that feel right to you, for me, that's that's where you need to sit. That's kind of the path to follow. What what was, you said you know what you would say. I, well, I do, with research, it's, I mean, it's slightly different. I mean, for anyone that's listening that doesn't know me, my PhD is in developmental psychology and I did a minor in psychometrics or research methods. And so I absolutely adore delving deep into studies and I take a look at the methodologies, everything. And, you know, what comes up for me is, well, I've done, I did an entire module that's run through Breastfeeding Conferences Australia on the science around sleep training. So you talk about you've got yeah. to now delve into every study. Yeah, yeah. I did that. <laughs> and it was, and you know, it's still available through BARB if people are interested. Um, yeah. If you're a lactation consultant, it's continuing education credits. But um, it is, it's a 80 minute video document with, awesome. it is, I mean, I'll be honest here, the science is, I don't look at how I feel. I, I The science part of me still goes, I've got to read a research right. article as unbiased as possible. There's always bias. Obviously there is. But yeah. I also came to my view on sleep training, which I used to think was a personal choice prior to kids. I still didn't like it. I wouldn't have done it. My mom didn't do it. This was not like our, our norm. But I didn't see a problem with it. So I actually came to the conclusion against it through reading the science. Right. So when I saw it, it was like, this, this doesn't make sense. And yeah. I'm reading the conclusions and then reading the article and you're like, mm -hmm. this isn't really mapping what you're saying here. Um, so I always find like, I still have to read the articles, even if it doesn't feel right to me, yeah. I have to go through and see what it is. And almost, I have yet to come across an article where I didn't go, okay, well, fine. we're looking at X, we're looking at Y. I was just sent a new one that recently out of Alberta said that, you know, cry out is okay. Um, there was no problems long-term. The problem is the lack of definitions and clarity in what they were assessing is mm. so incredibly vague that there's really very yeah. little you can take. It's not even clear how long did people cry out? What was the temperament of the children? Like this was all left to debate here. Um, yeah. And then a lot of times what gets promoted is not in line with what the research is. So mm -hmm. you mentioned Gratisar's paper and yeah, they found interestingly that although parents were happy, um, the actograph showed that infants did not sleep any better. And that's actually not the only study. There are others that have used actograph for those out listening who, um, there is no difference in sleep after sleep training. So it becomes, who is this for? And it's for parents, absolutely. Yeah. And then that raises a whole other question. But, um, you know, we, we look at these and people still push the other. The other thing that was fascinating about Gratisar's paper was that they had three groups. So they had the sleep training group, the control group, but they also had what's called um, 
uh, faded bedtime where you just push bedtime back bit by bit until you reach the point where babies go to bed faster and how do they sleep? So basically building up sleep pressure. And mm. that group was just as effective for parents and in some of the measures even more effective to parent well-being than the controlled crying group. But the conclusions still came down about, oh, controlled crying is great. And I'm going, but you also just offered an alternative. I mean, their sleep didn't change much either, to be perfectly honest. Neither did that group. So, I mean, all groups ended up with the same sleep at the end. But at least a baby staying up a bit longer and still being responded to all the time. Yeah. Cool. I, I mean, I personally don't have any objections to that because it like and it was based on how long you go with faded bedtime is, you know, if your baby takes longer than like 30 minutes to fall asleep, we'll push bedtime back 15 minutes the next day. And then if they take still until you get to well, the baby's taking over 30 minutes to fall asleep, they're not ready for sleep. Oh, like, well, they're it. Or you make it there. Yeah. But I find that's possibly, I don't, I have my own, I always say overtired is a thing that gets brought up a bit too frequently amongst you. These are, you know, generally, if you're talking about a happy baby who's awake, but not falling asleep, they're not overtired. They're just out doing their thing. So, okay. And then they still sleep the same. So why are we not talking about that? Because that seemed to help the parent issue. So we have alternatives for parents. We just ignore them. Or co-sleeping. Yes, you know. Talk about co-sleeping because why is this not a viable alternative for people? I know, I know. It's it drives me absolutely mad. It's Sorry, like we just cut out for a minute there. Oh, um, can you hear me now? I think we're back. Okay, good. I can. Yes, there we go. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's absolutely phenomenal the amount of misinformation that is out there um and twisting of information that is out there it's like um the term self-soothing that is so misappropriated that it you know it's caused so much impact on baby sleep and on parental expectations and on parents feeling like failures because their baby isn't drowsy but awake when they lay them down and all of this stuff. And it all comes from some poor guy who used the term in a study yeah. and not in that way at all. Yeah. Thomas Anders, yeah. He didn't even mean to use it that way. He just was using it as a counter to yeah. those kids that fell asleep and self-settling was he even acknowledged later a better term to have used. No, and that's my research for my PhD looked at emotion development stuff. So I looked at, so the development of emotion regulation requires co-regulation. Babies mm. don't self-soothe any more than I could run a super marathon. That's not <laughs> happening anytime soon. Um, heck, I can run a marathon. I probably can't even run a 5K, but that's a totally separate issue. Um, I was upset in the middle of the night. If I woke up crying from a nightmare, then... I would probably struggle to get back to sleep on my own. And I have a fully developed prefrontal cortex. What about these tiny little babies? I know. It's well, and one of the loops that people I think don't realize, or I'm going to say don't realize, um, don't know, but the way our prefrontal cortex develops, and this is why we talk about, you know, people worry about the stress of sleep training and everything for young babies. And that's a whole big issue. Um, but our prefrontal cortex, the teacher, 
for our prefrontal cortex is actually the amygdala. So we're born, we have an amygdala, it reacts strongly to events and yeah. how it reacts, the frequency, the fear, what it reacts to actually helps shape how our prefrontal cortex is then going to right. respond to threat. And then as it put in this great paper that I used the teacher from a paper that talked about this, then the prefrontal cortex becomes the teacher and the amygdala becomes the student again. Wow. But it's become a teacher through that pathway. So these yeah. early experiences shape how the prefrontal cortex responds mm. to future events. So when we do this, it's not only not having a prefrontal cortex that's fully mature, but we're actually shaping it to how it's wow. going to look later. And I'm just like, how do we ignore all this when we get there? It, it just seems like, you know, we, in favor of what's best for parents or what's best. And even then, I, you know, you brought up the issue of parents sitting and crying outside their child's door. Is that best for a parent? You know, I have a lot of clients who have said that they regret having done it in the first place. And as you said, with, you know, they've been to multiple people and then they're like, okay, I have to go to someone who actually feels right for me. Um, yeah, there are a lot of people who regret it. Um, they've done it because they thought that was the right thing to do and it didn't feel right and they feel com uncomfortable during it and then afterwards and then it all goes pear-shaped again when there's teething or sickness or travel and then they say, I wish I hadn't done it and I wish other people knew that it isn't necessary but there isn't enough information out there for them or the information is out there but the access to that information um, is not as easy as it should be it's not as prevalent as it should be but that's what we're here for <laughs> <laughs> you know but it's interesting i this reminds me of something i talked to carly grubb about a couple weeks ago when we talked and she shared her story and she acknowledged you know so many people don't share their stories mm. because it's so intensely painful yeah when we think we've done you know i know i've done things that you know, even I think about my son got a tongue, he had a tongue tie at birth. And when I had to get that released, and it was, I mean, comical, his, you know, he couldn't even reach his jaw without it being a full heart. The latch was just excruciating. My doula laughed when she saw him. She's like, well, that's like a picture perfect tongue tie of <laughs> like, we could just take a picture of it and put it up and be like, this is what it looks like. Sorry, I think we cut out again for a moment. Oh, my goodness. Internet connection in winter. I apologize. Um, <laughs> so they took, um, you know, it, it had to be done. But I remember the feeling of hearing him cry and the fact that I felt like I had hurt him. I had made a choice that negatively affected him. Now, I will say he just turned five and is still nursing. So I feel like this was probably the right move and loves it. So I mean, there you go. Um, but yeah. it is, it's something that was really hard to talk about and come to terms with, mm -hmm. even though even though at that time, I still knew this was, and eventually it would have had to have been done probably anyway mm -hmm. for speech and everything else, given the degree. So you go to, but even though I knew all that, it was intensely painful and I still don't even like talking about it. I want to just forget that day because I sat, they, he had to go separate and I sat outside crying exactly like the mom, like bawling my eyes out of what have I done? And so when I think about this with families like this, it's so intensely painful, but I think the more 
We have people like Carly and other moms who can actually face it and speak up about it. That just like that peer to peer support that helped you at the beginning, those groups that help you identify that peer to peer awareness for sleep and, and these experiences can also be incredibly helpful. I I think maybe I'm wrong, but I do believe it. Totally agree. Totally agree. It's, it's absolutely necessary to be talking about these things and processing them. The thing is, I think it's much easier to talk about it if you have then found your way out of it. Um, If you've kind of stopped at that point. So if you've done sleep training, for example, and you had an awful experience, but you haven't gone anywhere else with that, then I think it can be very difficult to process and talk about that. But, you know, for me and for Carly and for so many other people, once you've had a negative experience, something that's been uncomfortable or hurt you in the way that you're having to deal with your child because of societal expectations and all these other things, if you find a way out, which is what we did with you know, going through gentle sleep instead and truly supporting a baby's healthy sleep, Mm -hmm. um, people become almost evangelical about it. You know, you want to talk about it. You want to (laughs) tell other people that there is another route and that's when you start telling your story. Um, But I think if you haven't got to that point, you kind of hold it quite deep and it can be quite hurtful. I think I agree. I think you're probably spot on on that. Um, So I have, I know we're coming up on time here. So I have one last question. (laughs) Um, I have one last question that I want to ask though. I feel like we talked about this generalist view of sleep, the cultural expectations, the individual view. How do we get away from these generalist view of sleep? This idea that all babies must be doing something. I was listening to Helen Ball's public lecture before, and she talked about the statistical knowledge. And we use statistical knowledge against parents, even though statistical knowledge is culturally based. So we look at, you know, what dictates the average amount of baby sleeps, what culture they live in, what the parent practices are, um, even how you measure it, right? Like we talked about that study. Parents will swear their kids are sleeping through the night, and we look at data and go, not at all, sorry. Um, but if they're not waking you, okay, you don't know that. So yeah. how do we get doctors, families, everyone, I'm just going to dump it all on you. You let me know how. Um, <laughs> how do we get families here to move towards a more individualist, getting them to look at your baby? What is your baby need? Not, don't look at the clock. Don't look at what Joe down the street does. Um, look at your baby. How do we make that shift for people oh it's so difficult it's and it's such a huge huge job I wish I knew the answer honestly um the the things that I do and that I think help although on such a small basis I wish it was so much bigger um you know I like I provide for on my website anyone can download a um sleepy signals decoder this is just a really small example but um you download it for free and you can see lots of different sleepy signals ways that your babies are telling you that they are tired um this 
you know, there are so many different ways on there and there are so many different groups that they fall into and ways that people can interpret it that it kind of makes parents realize, okay, that they're not all the same. I've got to look at my baby and identify what is right with my baby. Um, and I think a lot of what we do needs to be more in those terms of talking about it, not in a generalist term, talking about it in a, a wide range. Like um, when I share with parents uh, sleep uh, table of how many hours a baby should sleep at different ages, those tables have caused so much harm for parents. But my table that I use, it, you know, at one age, for example, it's between 10 and 18 hours is a healthy range. Rather than 16 to 18 hours, it's between 10 and 18. And this instantly dissolves the stress on parents because they go, oh, okay, so my baby that's only sleeping 12 hours is not abnormal. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, you know, opening up these ranges, making everything wider rather than here is the average of 16 hours. Why is your baby only doing 12? It's widening everything out and making parents feel a little bit more like, okay, I'm in that wide, wide range. I think mm -hmm. helps. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think of it as um, I, I explain the bell curve to people, right? Like this yeah. is, you know, we don't say, oh, your baby is, okay, so the average of baby's weights at this age is whatever, 12 to 14 kilos. Your baby's 10 kilos and um, that's the 30th percentile. No, that's that's not right. You've got to start, you know, every child must, we don't do that. Like we acknowledge that this is an average and it goes like this all around and you can fall anywhere out. And maybe there are ends that are problematic, maybe. Yeah. And that's a maybe, and usually though, it's also not an infant sleep problem, it's something else, but it is, that's not, you know, but all these ranges remain normal within that. Yeah. So we're not looking at something that is necessarily a problem. It's, and if you wouldn't worry about your child's weight, if they were in the 30th or 20th or, cause let's be honest, no one worries if their baby sleeps too much. I don't know. I don't have anyone that comes to you with, my baby sleeps too much. I don't know what to do. Like yeah. baby wants to sleep 16 hours a day. And that's, that's, there you go. Uh, that's never been the concern. So it's like everything from this midpoint up, we accept. Um, yeah. Even though actually you can get to too much sleepiness as an indication of some underlying problem that yeah. we just, yeah. again, we've pathologized less sleep and normalized yeah. even when it is pathological more sleep which is fascinating um but yeah it's like somehow if you won't do it with your baby's weight or their height oh you're not tall enough what are we going to do let's stretch you out um that's not something that we would do for this so i don't know why you know yeah. but yet sleep is and i think it's partly we seem to live in a culture where we've decided sleep is the panacea to all like for everything oh. right like you know, oh, kids would be smarter, happier, better, this, that, the other, if they just slept more, as opposed to realizing that sleep is the accumulation of all these other events. And yes, yes it affects yeah. so much more, but 
it's not, you can't just change this one piece because all these other things are still in place and they all affect everything as well. Absolutely. And you'll find a lot of people will actually um, hang their other issues on sleep. They will, you know, it might be a marital issue. It might be a an adjustment to parenthood issue or, you know, so many other things that could be happening, mm -hmm. stress with work or postpartum depression, but it gets hung on sleep. If I yes. fix the sleep everything else will feel okay. And it's not. And when you start digging, when I take clients on and I start digging with them, I go, actually, I don't think that is the issue here. They're in that 10 to 18 hour range. Yeah, this is, they're fine. You might not be. And that's, you know, another really important thing is, you know, I just did that meme on Instagram, just reminding people that a baby's sleep can be entirely normal. What's yeah. not normal is coping with it alone in the yeah. way we've structured our society. When you are alone without support, two parents expected to do it all, that's not normal. And yeah. that's, I think, where our culture doesn't wanna make that shift, right? Yeah. Is we don't want to work towards supporting families, so we put the burden of change on babies. Yeah, and especially in the last year with everybody in lockdown and there's been even less support and more fear and more anxiety about going out and going to a doctor's is quite a big decision when you're in the middle of a pandemic. You know, it's quite stressful to expose your newborn baby to a hospital situation. So yeah, yeah. It, I can't even imagine having a newborn baby right now. Oh God. Oh, and you know what? Any baby where you're home, like even first year, where I think newborns in some sense, there's that stress, but as they get older, all the panic about, well, I can't get out. I can't take them to the park. They need mm -hmm. to move. They need people. all that stress manifests too. Um, and not getting out affects sleep. Amazing. So a lot of apartment living as well. So when uh, lockdown happened, you know, the babies, they were going to the park every day. They're going for walks every day. And then suddenly they, they don't have a garden out the back that they can go to. So instead, they're inside their apartment and their their outdoor space is a balcony during lockdown. Yeah. That's tough. That is very hard. That is so much. So, all right. I know we're at time here and I just, I want to thank you so much. And I did mention it earlier, but I would just like to point out your rock star. You did this while fighting COVID. Like yeah. that is. <laughs> I'm on the other side of it. I'm feeling a bit okay. better today. I don't know. I think I'd be flat on my back, but that's just me. Um, but thank I you. <laughs> so it's good. We just had it today. We did yeah. um, thank you so much for inviting me on. It was so, so lovely to chat. Oh, it is so nice to chat. So can you just finish off for me? Tell me where do, where does everyone find you? on because I mean I mentioned you have Facebook you've got Instagram but what's the handle everything like that yeah so it's um at the gentle mama um I'm on Instagram at the gentle mama and it's the one with one m there is the gentle mama with two m's who came after me <laughs> um, the gentle mama with one m <laughs> and uh, on Facebook as well and uh I have a website um and I should say I'm not actually taking any clients right now. Um, I'm working on something so I don't have any. I've had to shut down my waiting list, um, but wow. I will be taking clients again very soon. Um, so, yeah. Okay. But, but, you, 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 message me. Like, you talked about online and everything. Yeah, and that's yeah. the gentleman.com. 
Uh, yes, so if they go to thegentlemama.com, they, they can uh, fill in their email address, they'll get the um, Sleepy Signals decoder, uh, and then I send out other useful stuff in my emails, um, and I am available for DMing. I haven't whilst I've been fighting coronavirus, but I will be back on that very soon. Uh, so yeah, you can still get in contact with me. Now that was my chat with Haley Buckhampson. I hope you enjoyed it. That's it for this episode. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with another great conversation. As always, you can reach me at evolutionaryparenting.com. I'm Tracy Castles. Thanks for listening.